0: Father, we got a lot of things going on, but right now we want only one thing to happen. We want you to speak to us as only you can do. We we come with a, um, a ball of emotions in our heart. There have been challenges this past week and joys. There have been disappointments and success. All of us live sometimes in, with fear and then another time there's boldness with understanding who we are in you and then slipping back into insecurity. So Father, we come today with just a whole, a whole ball of emotions in our heart and we know that you're the one who can meet us right where we are, whatever we're going through. Whatever, whatever challenge, whatever situation, whatever confusing, convoluted mix we have going on, you meet us right where we are. You never leave us there, but then you take us to where you, you want us to be. So we are depending on that today. I have absolutely nothing to say unless you speak. Use your word to, to soften hearts. We can't hear unless you open our ears. We, we certainly cannot apply unless you allow us to absorb the truth and then help us put it into practice. So we are totally dependent on you. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we look at your word. In Christ's name, amen. I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We are in a series of sermons regarding the life of Jesus. And today we look at um, a story, an interaction that Jesus had with his disciples, a significant uh, interaction, a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at Mark chapter 8. Let me set the context. The Jewish people in Jesus' day were oppressed. They were living under the rule of Rome. They were taxed into poverty. They were viewed as second-class citizens. They desired to be relieved from that. They desired for a Messiah to come, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, a Messiah like Moses who would come and deliver them politically and deliver them in a military way. They wanted to reestablish the great kingdom of Israel that they had under King David and under King Solomon, and they wanted to be independent again. They were looking for that Messiah, and they began to believe that Jesus was the man. Jesus was healing people. Jesus was doing these great miracles. He was teaching with authority. It was amazing what Jesus was doing. And in this this little country of Israel that fits into New Jersey, Jesus was famous. Everyone knew about this man from Nazareth, this man called Jesus. He had just fed 5,000 people, we saw last time, with with five loaves and, and two small fish, 5,000 men besides women and children. So we're talking maybe 10,000, 12,000 people. The people there were so enamored by him and so amazed by him, they intended to, to make him king by force. And so Jesus went into the hills to pray. And after he did that, he sent his disciples on the water across the Sea of Galilee to a town called Gennesaret. And we remember last week, the story where he met them on the water. When they got in the boat and landed in Gennesaret, there was already a crowd of people there. They recognized Jesus. They ran to Jesus. They brought their sick to Jesus. In fact, there, there's a, Mark says that the crowds were so heavy and so big that they were crowding around Jesus and some people were straining to work their way through the crowd just to touch the hem of his robe. And when they did, they were healed. The disciples and Jesus, leaving Gennesaret, then made their way back to the place they had fed the 5,000, this little village called Bethsaida. And all along the way, they taught, Jesus taught and healed people in these little villages. And then when they got to Bethsaida, Jesus said, I need to get away. I want to go to a place that's remote. And so he traveled 25 miles north from Bethsaida to uh, Caesarea Philippi in the northern part of the country. Now, 25 miles is not far when you're in a car, but they were walking. And they were heading to this place that was right at the foot of Mount Hermon, actually where the Jordan River starts. And there Jesus was going to take a little respite. But on the way, Jesus never wasted time. And on the road, on their road trip, he he entered into some important conversation with them. Look at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and on the way, he asked them, "Who do people say I am?" Well, they replied, "Some say John the Baptist; others say you're Elijah; and still others say you're, you're one of the one of the prophets." Do you remember uh, from last time, King Herod had this daughter named uh, Salome. Josephus says her name was Salome. It's not in Scripture. And she uh, performed this provocative dance in front of Herod. And he was so taken by it that he promised her anything in his kingdom. Prompted by her mother, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Her mother did not like John the Baptist because he had confronted her with her sin. So John the Baptist was beheaded and his head brought there. She took the platter and then took it over to her mom. When King Herod heard about Jesus, you know what he thought? He thought John the Baptist had come back to life. Mark chapter 6, verse 16. Herod said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. And he was fearful of Jesus. Other people thought he was Elijah. Other people thought he was, Matthew says, Jeremiah, the prophet. The one thing I learned from this, the disciples were informed, weren't they? They didn't walk around just following Jesus with their head stuck in the sand at the same time, figuratively speaking. They knew what was going on. They they knew the world around them. That's an important lesson for us, isn't it? We've got to know what's going on around us. And these disciples, they knew. And so they said, some say you're this, and some say you're this. Some say you're a prophet. And then Jesus uses that platform shoot straight to the heart. Look at verse 29. What about you? He asked, who do you say I am? In the Greek, if you want to emphasize something, you always put that word at the first of the sentence, and he puts the word you. He turns to them and says, you, who am I? That's the real question, isn't it? There are all kinds of opinions of Jesus floating around. I asked Simon to pull up Uh, Some old uh, covers of Time Magazine. I don't know how many times Jesus has been on the cover of Time, but check some of these out. Here is In Search, The Search for Jesus. Uh, Here's another one. Why did Jesus have to die? That came out around, I think, the Passion, when the Passion of the Christ movie came out. Uh, Here's one, uh, Life Magazine, Who Was Jesus? Here are a couple from Newsweek uh, Magazine, Who Really Killed Jesus and How Jesus Became the Christ? And those are just a few of hundreds because there's all kinds of views out there floating about Jesus, a teacher, a miracle worker, a founder of a religion on par with Mohammed and Buddha. Got some great quotes, vague ideas. But here's the question. Who do you say? Jesus is you. Jesus asks if he looked you right in the eye and said, you, who am I? How would you respond? How would you respond? Look at Peter's response at the end of verse 29. Peter answered, always the outspoken disciple, usually the one speaking first. Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. The word means anointed one. You are the anointed one. In Hebrew, it means Messiah. It's the word Messiah. Messiah. In Greek, it's the word Christ. So anytime you see anointed one, Messiah, or Christ, it's the same thing. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are it. Now notice Jesus' response. Look at verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now that's interesting. Why would he do that? Aren't we supposed to go tell the world about Jesus? Right here, he tells the disciples, Don't tell anyone who I am. In fact, the Greek is, He ordered them. Don't you dare tell anyone who I am. Why why is that? There are many times throughout the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus says that Don't tell anyone who I am. I, I won't go through all the passages. There are many. If you want them, I can email them to you. In Mark, it's called the Messianic Secret. There are times when he says, don't tell anyone. They're all in Mark 1 through 7. Because now in Mark 8, there's a turning point. And Jesus is going to explain clearly who he is. And the reason to this point he's told them not to tell anyone is because they didn't understand who the Messiah really was and what the Messiah came to do. They had the Old Testament concept of the Messiah who was going to come like Moses, who is going to come as a political leader, who is going to come as a military leader. And every time Jesus got, did a miracle or close to that and people got excited, they wanted to make him king by force. They wanted to make him that political leader. They wanted to make him that military leader. Now, when Jesus comes a second time, that's going to happen. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But the first time he came for a different reason. Disciples didn't get it at that point. People didn't get it, but he came for a different reason. He came to suffer as the Messiah. Suffering Messiah did not jive. Those were were like an oxymoron in their mind at that time. So Jesus has some teaching for them before they go proclaim who he is. Look at chapter 8, verse 31. And then he began to teach. In the Greek, he taught repeatedly. He drove this home. Mark is going to summarize it for us. He may have taught for an hour. He may have taught for three hours. We don't know. He may have taught longer. We don't know. But he is driving this home. This is a point in Mark, right in the middle of the book, where Jesus is now headed to the cross. And he is explaining to his disciples as clearly as he can what's going to happen. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Son of Man was a title he loved to to give to himself. The Son of Man must suffer. It is a divine necessity that the Son of Man Suffers many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. You're going to be, I'm going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders. The elders were the lay leaders. The chief priests were the Sadducees. The teachers of the law were the Pharisees and scribes. They made up what was called the Sanhedrin, uh, the 70, kind of like their supreme court. And Jesus said, I'm going to be rejected by the supreme court of Israel and they're going to kill me. I must. Be killed. What do you mean you must be killed? Why would you have to die? And then after three days, I'm going to rise again. He spoke plainly about this. He didn't speak in parables. He didn't give any hints. He didn't use figures of speech. He spoke plainly that he was going to die. And he didn't mince any words. And the disciples understood it clearly. We know that because Peter didn't miss the message. He didn't agree with the message. Look at the end of verse 32. When Jesus had spoken these words, again, we don't know how long, Peter took him aside and what? Began to rebuke him. Jesus, with all due respect, I need to give you some coaching tips. You're being a bit pessimistic. You're probably just tired. It's a long trip. You've got to cheer up. You're the Messiah. I just said you were. You're it. And the Messiah, we all know that the Messiah does not die. The Messiah leads us. Quit talking nonsense. You're killing the morale of the disciples. The word there is Peter took him by the arm. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, and it's as if, not as if, Peter took him by the arm and took Jesus away by himself and turned Jesus' back to the disciples, and Peter is speaking to him face to face. Jesus, got to pick it up. Got to pick it up. This isn't the deal. Look at verse 33. But when Jesus turned, that Greek word means he wheeled around. He didn't turn slowly. He whipped around. And he looked at his disciples because his back was turned to them. And now he wants to make sure they hear everything he has to say. And he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now think about what has just transpired. Remember earlier, Matthew says it this way. I'm going to read Matthew's account of this. When, when Jesus came, this is Matthew 16, 13 through 17. When, Ma- when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, son of the living God. Remember, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, so he uses the word Messiah. You're the Messiah, son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Pretty heady stuff, isn't it? And now, just a time later, he looks Peter in the eye and says, get behind me Satan. You're talking not God talk anymore. You're talking man talk. And Jesus rebuked him because this was the theme of the temptation that Satan had in front of Jesus his entire ministry, his entire life. It's the temptation that he had in the desert, when he was fasting for 40 days, it's the temptation that he had when the people wanted to make him king at the feeding of the 5,000. It was the temptation that was always in front of Jesus. What was that temptation? The kingdom without what? The cross. That was Satan's thing. Jesus, you can have it all. Bow before me. I will give you everything. You can have the kingdom. That's what you came to do you don't have to go through the cross. And Peter is not, Jesus is not calling Peter Satan. He's saying, Peter, you are being Satan's mouthpiece. And I, when I read that, I, that, that frightens me, doesn't it? Do you? We have to be careful. One moment, we can be, we can be speaking the things of God to people. If you're, if you're a leader... And then the next moment, we can be speaking the things that are prompted by Satan. Man, that's, that's frightening. And that's why Jesus was so blunt with, with, with Peter. You, you, you are bringing that same temptation up that Satan has in front of me all the time. Now, to this point, again, everyone wanted and expected the Messiah, to be this military and political leader. That was the model of man, but not the model of God. Jesus came to die on a cross for our sin. The second time he comes, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. No one's going to get around that. But this time he came to die for our sins. There's this great separation between man and God. And we cannot get there on our own. Your best day, your best effort your confirmation class, your first baptism, whatever you do, things we do here, right? Coming to church and singing songs, that does not make you a Christian. Your best effort will not make you a Christian. Jesus came to die on a cross for our sin. He came as the one-time-for-all-time sacrifice for us. He died so we could live. His death on the cross was our substitute. And so when we trust in Jesus, we are trusting in his work on the cross that we should have been there, but he took that death in our place. That's why he came. He came to die. Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And here in Mark chapter 8, it turns. And now Jesus is going to make certain everyone there understands for good that this life is not about a military procession or a political overthrow. Something different is going to take place. And Jesus is going to tell his disciples, if you really want to follow me, if you're serious about, if you, if you want to play games, that's a whole other story. But if you're serious about following me, some things have to happen. Some things have to be demonstrated in your life. Some solemn stuff. We're going to go through those in verses 34 through 38 as we prepare for communion. And as we do that, I just wanted to give a little administrative uh, instruction right now. We have a, we're going to have a new way of distributing communion. And when, you, uh, when it's passed, we'll just have one time to pass and there'll be two cups together the ju- juice on the top and the bread on the bottom. So you'll get these together. And you can hold them in your hand. And one of the reasons we did it was just basically f- for hygiene reasons, actually. So everyone's getting those big pieces of bread and dripping their hands all over all the other pieces <laughs> of bread. And, and so I'm explaining this because the first time I saw this, no one explained it and it got passed by and I thought, those goofballs, they put two cups there. We wouldn't do that at our church. <laughs> and then the pastor got up and said, okay, let's take the bread. And I said, what a goofball, because there's no bread here. But actually I did have the bread and the cup. So I want to make sure you understand what we're doing. Okay. So that's the administrative thing. You can get two cups. Bill McDougall, one of our elders is going to lead us in that just like normal, but a different distribution system. All right. Everyone understand you're going to take two cups. Everybody got it? Good. I wanted to get that out of the way so we can get back to the passage. Look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Think about this. Jesus has just rebuked Peter. You are thinking the things of man, not of God. And it goes for all you disciples out there, too, if you're thinking that. Now he brings them in close. He's kind of like, okay, come in close. And anyone else in the crowd, you want to come in close, you join us. And then Jesus gives some very specific instructions for the believer. Now I want to be very careful here. To become a Christian, it's a free gift of God's grace. You, you do not earn it. You can't deserve it. It's not something you buy. There's no price to it. It's all by grace. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And when that happens, when it truly happens, now there are a lot of times people make professions, and they think they have their ticket punched to heaven. But there's no change in their life. When you truly become a Christian, something changes from the inside. You are regenerated. You are redeemed The the old sin nature is not completely unplugged. It comes back and dogs us all the time. But there's a new pattern of our life. When Jesus changes us, the internal change produces outward actions. It's not that the outward actions save us, it's that the outward actions are a demonstration that we are saved and that salvation is all by grace. It's a free gift, it's nothing we can do. And when we receive that free gift, we are changed from the inside out and we are a new creation. Old things are gone, new things have come, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And so it looks different from the outside, right? And so when we go through these, these are not things you have to do to become a Christian. Jesus is saying, you're following me. You're one of mine. Here are the things you need to do to demonstrate that, that you are in and to demonstrate to a watching world, here's the way we're going to change everything. Here's the way we're going to change the world together. Here are the things you need to do so we can change the world together. I've already changed your heart. Now let's go change the world together. You have to look different than the world to do that. You don't need to change something that doesn't need changed, right? So here are the things you need to do in order to change your world. Let's read through it. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. It's some tough teaching on through here. He must deny himself. By the way, that doesn't mean that you need to do without pizza twice a month to give to be on these walls. That doesn't mean that you need to, to buy a different car or move from your house. It's not what it means. That's those things are just symptoms to the real issue inside, to, to do those things would be like putting band-Aid on a cancer. Denying myself is, is something deeper. W- one commentator says this: "To deny oneself is not to do without something or even many things. It is not asceticism or self-hatred. It's not even disowning particular sins, because I'm going to sin as a believer. Here's what it is. It's to renounce the self as the dominant element in life. It's to replace the self with God in Christ as the object of affections. It is to place the divine will before self-will. If we would put one word to that, it's talking about kingship. Who is really on the throne of your life? Who is really the decision-maker? Who's really the director? Who do you bow before? And Jesus said, it's got to be me. I'm the one who changed your life. I got some great plans for you. It's got to be me. Kingship. You must deny yourself. You must have me on the throne. And in those times when you take me off and you do your own thing, you need to, as a believer repent, confess, and put me back up there so we can move on together. He must deny himself and take up his cross. We get these pictures of Jesus going to the cross, pulling the big cross like the T, right, on his shoulders. That's not how it worked. The The vertical bar was always at the place of crucifixion. It stayed there. The criminal, condemned criminal, took the crossbar and carried the crossbar on his shoulders, tied to his wrist, the heavy crossbar. And then he was paraded through town. And if you've been to Israel, little... Narrow streets, the road to the cross, the Via della Rosa, just tiny, tiny little narrow streets. And people were yelling stuff and spitting and throwing stuff as the criminal walked down these streets. And that was the symbol of the criminal saying, whether he wanted to or not, I am under the authority of the Roman Empire. Whether I want to or not, I am submitting myself to the Roman Empire. I am carrying my cross. So when Jesus says we are to carry our cross, he now is speaking figuratively. He's not talking about the crossbar to some of the disciples he may have been. Some of them were crucified as martyrs. But to us today, he is saying the word submission. Will you live your life walking down the parade of your life, walking down the streets of your life, showing others that you uh, are submitting to me? You live under my authority. Will your life look like that? I've changed you from the inside out. That was the free gift I gave you. Now, when you change from inside out, there are going to be things on the outside that look different. Are you going to live under my authority? Jesus said, Deny Himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Here's the word direction. What direction are you going to head in? I don't want to get into all the Greek all the time, but I love some of the grammar here in the Gospels. They're so, it's so powerful. This word is in the present imperative, present active imperative, which means it's significant. It means you're going to make a decision to follow me, right? And then you're going to make a decision to follow me every day. It is a continued decision because sometimes you're going to get off the path. Sometimes you want to go your own route. Sometimes you're going to follow self. Then you've got to get me back on the throne. you got to live under my authority, and you got to catch back up with me. Will you follow me? J.C. Ryle, an old commentator, says, these are hard sayings, but they admit of no evasion. In other words, you can't write them off. The words of our Lord are plain and unmistakable. If we will not carry the cross, we will never wear the crown. Look at verse 35 and 36. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, some of the disciples literally lost their life. Some of us may literally lose our lives. We don't know what will happen. But figuratively as well, we must be willing to lose our life. It's not about us anymore. Are you willing to give your life away in order to live for eternity? That's what Jesus is calling us to do. It's not a, it's not a happy face, punch my ticket to heaven card. It's I'm changing you from the inside out. We're on a new route together. You're a different person. We're going to change the world together. I have you on a great adventure. Don't get so caught up in the stuff here that you miss out on the real eternal stuff. What can a man gain? Look at verse 37. What can, a man gain, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? How much would that be worth to you? How much would it be worth? At the end of the day, you said, no, my soul is worth this much. I'm, I want to do all this in my life, and I'm going to forfeit my soul, but that's, that's okay with me. Perspective. That's what Jesus is talking about there. Here's the last one. Witness. Witness. This dry, this just digs into anyone who would say, oh, I just witness with my life. I don't really need to tell anyone about it. Really? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous... And this is verse 38. In this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and the holy angels. If, if, if the pat- Jesus is saying, if the pattern of your life is that you will never speak up for me, in fact, you're it's not that you just don't speak up for me, you're ashamed of me, that nothing really internally has happened. And when you get to that day when you stand before me, I'm going to say, time out. When did you ever speak up for me? I ain't speaking up for you. The gospel say um, many people will stand before Jesus and say, hey, I did all these things in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these things. We went to church. We sung songs. We even raised our hands. Sometimes, not all the times, sometimes we raised both hands. Jesus could say, really? Did you think that's what it was about? I didn't even know you. Don't you want to stand before Christ and say, here, well done, good and faithful servant. And you you don't get that message then if you're not, if you're ashamed of him today. It starts today. That's why communion is so powerful. Because we have to, examine ourselves, and we need that. We're, we're redeemed, but, but we still have that old sinful nature, and it pulls us down, and there are times when we have to say, man, I'm missing the ball here. I'm missing the boat here. i got to pick this up. I can't do it on my own. Lord, through your spirit, give me the strength to do this. I've got to get you back on the throne of my life. I've got to be going your direction. I want you as the object of my affections, because right now it's really not. I want you to be the leader of my life. We're going to put some things on the screen as you hold, as you're waiting for, or as you're holding the bread and the cup, who is the object of your affections? Answer these questions today as you hold the bread and the cup. Am I living in true submission to Jesus? Who is the true leader of my life? Could a person watch me for a week and conclude that I'm not a part of this system of the world that opposes God? Am I ashamed of standing up for Jesus? Father, those are the questions that we want to answer today because we want to be those. We desire to be those on a great adventure for you. When we deny ourselves for you, it is the most significant, most satisfying thing we can do. When we follow you, it is the most significant, most satisfying thing we can do. When we carry our cross for you, it is the most significant, most satisfying thing we can do. And if we're missing it today, Lord, speak to us during this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Bill McDougall going to come and lead us in communion. This is for believers only. If you've trusted in Christ, take the bread and the cup. If not, let it pass. Today would be the day we plead with you trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior.